From New York, this is Democracy Now! We used to eat bird food. It was bitter. We did not want to eat it. We used to do so forcibly. We used to have a small loaf every two days. We did not like it as it was bitter. Gaza is starving as the flow of AIDS reportedly slowed and the United Nations is warning of an explosion in child deaths due to the lack of food and water. A two-month-old boy reportedly died Friday from starvation. We'll speak with Palestinian poet Masab Abu Toha. His new piece for The New Yorker, My Family's Daily Struggle to Find Food in Gaza. And we'll speak to a nutritionist, lead author of a new joint report from the London School of Hygiene and Johns Hopkins University on the crisis in Gaza. Then anti-Palestinian at the core. We look at the origins and growing dangers of U.S. anti-terrorism law. Looking back over the past 50 years and the key moments of the development of terrorism law in the United States, one of the key agendas at work has been implacable hostility to Palestinian liberation. In fact, the first time the word terrorism even shows up in federal law, it's used as a synonym for Palestinian resistance. We'll speak with the author of a new report and the head of Palestine Legal, which defends people who support Palestinian rights. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A two-month-old Palestinian boy has died of starvation as U.N. officials warn of a looming famine in Gaza. The U.N. relief agency, UNRWA, says it's been unable to deliver aid to northern Gaza in over a month. Palestinian officials say nearly 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's ongoing assault on Gaza. Israel's continuing to carry out strikes on Rafah, where over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge. On Friday, one 17-year-old Palestinian girl described losing six members of her family in an Israeli attack. My mother died, two of my brothers and my sister with her daughter and son. They were all martyred. Only my father, two of my brothers and I, and three girls are left. There is no one left. There is no one left. Oh, God, there is no one left. Oh, God, may they rest in peace. On Friday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu outlined his plan for a post-war Gaza. He called for Israel to maintain full security control of the entire Gaza Strip while opposing the future creation of a Palestinian state. This comes as negotiations continue over a possible six-week pause to the fighting as part of a deal to free the remaining hostages in Gaza. In other developments, Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammed Shdeya and his cabinet have resigned. He said, quote, I see that the next stage and its challenges require new governmental and political arrangements that take into account the new reality in Gaza and the new need for a Palestinian-Palestinian consensus based on Palestinian unity and the extension of unity of authority over the land of Palestine, he said. The Biden administration spoken out against Israel's plan to build 3,000 new housing units in settlements in the occupied West Bank. In a reversal of policy put in place by Donald Trump, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. views settlement expansion as, quote, inconsistent with international law. 
new settlements are counterproductive to reaching an enduring peace. Uh, they're also inconsistent with international law. An active duty member of the U.S. Air Force set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy in Washington, saying he could no longer be complicit in genocide. 25-year-old Aaron Bushnell live-streamed his own self-immolation. The video—in the video, he could be heard screaming, free Palestine, as the fire spread. Bushnell, who was wearing his Air Force uniform, spoke on the live stream prior to setting himself on fire. I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. D.C. authorities said Aaron Bushnell was in critical condition Sunday. There are unconfirmed reports he succumbed to his injuries. In December, a protester with a Palestinian flag self-immolated outside the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, Georgia. The New York Times has reportedly launched an internal investigation of a freelance Israeli reporter after she liked multiple posts on social media advocating for violence against Palestinians, including one that called for turning Gaza into a slaughterhouse. In December, the reporter, Anath Schwartz, co-authored a widely criticized article for The New York Times alleging members of Hamas committed widespread sexual violence October 7th. The Intercept recently reported doubts over the accuracy of the article led The New York Times to shelving an episode about the issue on its daily podcast, known as The Daily. American and British fighter jets attacked Yemen again on Saturday. Military officials said 18 Houthi targets were struck. The U.S. has carried out near-daily attacks on Yemen over the past month as Houthi forces continue to target ships in the region to protest Israel's assault on Gaza. On Friday, a massive pro-Palestinian protest was held in Sana'a. Of course, we went out today to continue our path in support of Gaza and in support of Palestine. It is our first cause and we will never abandon it. By God, even if we are all killed, we will not abandon this issue, as it is the central issue for all free peoples, for all free peoples, for all the peoples of the Islamic nation. Donald Trump has moved a step closer to securing the Republican presidential nomination after defeating Nikki Haley in South Carolina's primary. Trump won about 60 percent of the vote. Haley, who had served as South Carolina's governor, received almost 40 percent. She spoke to supporters Saturday. I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. I'm a woman of my word. In another setback for Nikki Haley, a key political network funded by billionaire Charles Koch announced it would end its financial support for her candidacy. Trump's victory in South Carolina came just days after a New York judge ordered him to pay $454 million in a civil fraud case. On Saturday, Trump addressed supporters at the Conservative Political Action Conference and claimed his multiple criminal indictments have helped him win support in the black community. And then I got indicted a second time and a third time and a fourth time. 
And a lot of people said that that's why the black people like me, because they have been hurt so badly and discriminated against. And they actually viewed me as I'm being discriminated against. It's, it's been pretty amazing. But it possibly, I don't know, maybe there's something there. Trump was addressing the Black Conservative Federation. President Biden's campaign co-chair, Cedric Richmond, responded to Trump's comment, saying, quote, Donald Trump claiming that black Americans will support him because of his criminal charges is insulting, it's moronic, and it's just plain racist, Cedric Richmond said. The prime ministers of Italy, Canada and Belgium traveled to Kyiv on Saturday as Ukraine marked the second anniversary of Russia's invasion. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has acknowledged 31,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed over the past two years, but many experts believe that to be an undercount. The anniversary comes as Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials urge U.S. lawmakers to approve the $60 billion aid package requested by President Biden. In Burkina Faso, at least 15 people were killed after an attack at a local Catholic church as worshippers gathered for mass. No one's claimed responsibility for the shooting in the village of Esakani, located in northern Burkina Faso, where violence between armed groups has been on the rise. The number of people killed by armed groups has nearly tripled recently, while over 2 million have been displaced by violence. The South Korean government has issued a warning to doctors on strike, saying they have until the end of the month to end their protest and return to work or risk suspension of their licenses and possible prosecution. Doctors have been protesting the government's plan to increase medical school admissions by around 65 percent. Young doctors, residents, student doctors resigned en masse following the news, and thousands have walked off the job, causing delays and cancellations of surgeries at hospitals. They say when they want the government to prioritize their demands for higher pay and a more manageable workload. Trainee doctors usually work over 100 hours per week. While some may think we start our shifts at 8 or 9 a.m. in the morning, in reality, we begin at 4 or 6 a.m. in the morning. We earn around $1,500 to $3,000 per month, not tens of thousands of dollars. The current medical system in South Korea, which is a great one, is run by making cheap trainee doctors keep grinding. In the Philippines, thousands of protesters gathered across the country Sunday to oppose President Ferdinand Marcos Jr.'s plans to amend the Constitution. The protest took place on the 38th anniversary of the People Power Revolution, also known as the EDSA Revolution, that ousted his father, U.S.-backed dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. Critics say President Marcos's proposed charter is designed to keep him in power. Marcos says he's seeking to make improvements to the economy. His father's regime is remembered for its corruption, imposing martial law and its deadly crackdown on critics, which killed, jailed and tortured tens of thousands of people, including religious leaders, journalists and students. A New York jury on Friday found former National Rifle Association leader Wayne LaPierre had mismanaged the group's funds, diverting $5.4 million for personal benefit. LaPierre must repay over $4 million. He already paid back around $1 million. New York Attorney General Letitia James brought the case against LaPierre, accusing him of using NRA money to fund luxury trips, expensive clothing and insider contracts. The jury also found two other top NRA executives acted inappropriately. A jury found a South Carolina man guilty of murdering Pebbles Ladime Doe, a black transgender woman, in 2019. 
It's believed to be the country's first federal hate crime trial for a gender identity-based murder. Dakwa Lameek Ritter faces a maximum sentence of life in prison. Prosecutors say Ritter murdered Doe after she made their secret relationship public. Human rights campaigns said, quote, anti-transgender stigma is exacerbated by callous or disrespectful treatment too often seen from media, law enforcement and our highest elected officials. This epidemic of violence that disproportionately targets transgender people of color, particularly black transgender women, must cease, they said. Vigils were held across the nation this weekend for Next Benedict, an Oklahoma non-binary 16-year-old who died the day after they were attacked in the Owasso High School bathroom by three girls. Authorities said last week Benedict did not die as a result of trauma, though full details from their autopsy have not been made public and investigations are ongoing. While being treated at the hospital, Next Benedict spoke to a police officer about what happened. To the bathroom. Okay. And I was talking to my friends, they were talking with their friends, and we were laughing, and they had said something like, why do they laugh like that? And, and mm-hmm. they were talking about us in front of us. Mm-hmm. And so I went up there and I poured water on them, okay. and then all three of them came at me. They came at me, they grabbed out of my hair, I grabbed onto them, uh, I threw one of them into a paper towel dispenser, and then they got my legs out from under me and got me on the ground, trying to be in the okay. okay. And then my friends tried to jump in and help, but I'm, I'm not sure I blacked out. Next, Benedict identified within the two-spirit transgender and gender nonconforming umbrella. Family members said they'd faced bullying since last year. In 2022, Oklahoma lawmakers passed a law banning transgender students from using bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity. The Palestinian-Israeli film No Other Land has taken the prize for Best Documentary at the Berlinale Film Festival. It's called um, In Berlin, Germany. Uh, the film looks at Israel's mass expulsion of Palestinians living in Musafayata in the occupied West Bank. The film was made by a Palestinian-Israeli collective. One of the filmmakers, the Israeli journalist Yuval Abraham, said he's received death threats after making these comments about him and his Palestinian colleague Basil Adra at the film festival's awards ceremony. In two days, we will go back to a land where we are not equal. I'm living under a civilian law, and Basel is under military law. We live 30 minutes from one another, but I have voting rights, and Basel is not having voting rights. I'm free to move where I want in this land. Basel is, like millions of Palestinians, locked in the occupied West Bank. This situation of apartheid between us, this inequality, it has to end. And the Norwegian sociologist Johan Galtung has died at the age of 93. He's widely credited as the principal founder of the discipline of peace and conflict studies. He was a past winner of the Right Livelihood Award. He appeared on Democracy Now! numerous times. I look forward to the U.S. instead of intervening militarily, starting solving conflicts. There are so many bright people in this country, so many well-educated people. And you see, solving conflict, you have to talk with the other side, or the other sides. Visit democracynow.org to see all our, all our interviews with the late Johan Galtung.
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, a famine is unfolding in Gaza. We'll speak with Palestinian poet Mossab Abu Toha. He's got a new piece in The New Yorker headlined, My Family's Daily Struggle to Find Food in Gaza. And we'll talk to a nutritionist who's the lead author of a new report from the London School of Hygiene and Johns Hopkins on the crisis in Gaza. Stay with us. Lost Town by Firas Zreik. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show with Israel's war on Gaza, where a famine is unfolding. The United Nations said today the great majority of some 400,000 Gazans who are at risk of starving are, quote, actually in famine, not just at risk of famine. The U.N. World Food Program says the flow of aid into Gaza from Egypt and the distribution of food that does get through has slowed in the past two weeks. <coughs> this comes as the Shahab News Agency reports a two-month-old Palestinian boy named Mahmoud Fatou died from starvation Friday in northern Gaza, just days after the United Nations warned of an explosion in child deaths due to the lack of food and water. This is a displaced Palestinian mother sheltering at a school in the Jabalia camp in northern Gaza. My son is one year old. He is asking for bread, for baby bottle milk. He is going after me everywhere, asking for a bottle. What would I feed him? There is no milk. There is no bread. There is nothing. There is no food. What will I feed him? Meanwhile, in central Gaza, there are two young siblings from Gaza City who are now living in a tent camp near Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital in Deir al-Bala. They describe being forced to eat animal feed. When we were in Gaza City, we used to eat nothing. We would eat every two days. My mother, brother, and aunts were martyred. We are the only ones left. My father and my two brothers. Due to hunger and poverty, we secretly came to Dara al-Bala. We did not tell our father. After we came here, our grandmother called and started shouting at us. 
We used to eat bird food. It was bitter. We did not want to eat it. We used to do so forcibly. We used to have a small loaf every two days. We did not like it as it was bitter. We did not have clean water. We used to drink salt water and we got sick. We did not have water to wash nor clothes to wear. Where could we have gotten those? We came here. The boys are 11 and 9 years old. This comes as U.N. Chief Antonio Guterres warned Monday against a full-scale Israeli military operation in Rafa, where well over a million displaced Palestinians have sought refuge, saying it would deliver, quote, the final nail in the coffin, unquote, for aid programs in Gaza, where humanitarian assistance remains, quote, completely insufficient. For more, we go to Cairo, Egypt, where we're joined by Mossab Abu Toha, a Palestinian poet, teacher, author, and founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza. His new piece for The New Yorker magazine is headlined, My Family's Daily Struggle to Find Food in Gaza. In it, he writes about a message um, that his brother Hamza posted on social media earlier this month, which included a picture of what he was eating that day. In his words, quote, a ragged brown morsel, seared black on one side and flecked with grainy bits. He translates his brother's Arabic caption, quote, this is the wondrous thing we call bread, a mixture of rabbit, donkey and pigeon feed. There's nothing good about it except that it fills our bellies. It's impossible to stuff it with other foods or even break it except by biting down hard with one's teeth. Masab Abu Toha, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you can start by responding to what you heard, you got out of Gaza with your children um, when you heard that a two-month-old boy starved to death on Friday in Gaza. Well, in fact, this is very scary because most of the population in Gaza are children. And uh, all my cousins, all my cousins, and all my most of my uh, nephews and nieces are younger than ten, so none of them would uh, survive if they didn't have any good food or clean water for days. <clears throat> Yesterday, I was uh, I, I got a video from my brother Hamza um, showing that he, my my mother and my in-law were. Uh, digging through the rubble, looking for some food. Uh, but all they could find were some books that were in my home. So people are, are returning to their bond houses, which is not a safe, uh, a safe place to search for food, looking for some food that they used to have in their houses. And the, the news about the death of some children is really scary, because, as I mentioned, most of the people in Gaza are children. So talk more about your brother's family and what he's facing right now and how you're dealing with this with your boys and your wife in Cairo. Well, one striking thing is that my eight-year-old boy, uh, whenever we sit to eat or whenever we get a phone call or when we tr whenever we try to call our family in Gaza, the first thing my son asks is, does 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 my family in Gaza have food? Are they eating? So the so we, he doesn't think about anything that has to do with the war itself. He doesn't he doesn't say that are they in a safer place? Is there no bombing anymore? God willing, no. He asks about food because 
he knows what it means to have little food when we were living living uh, in Gaza before we left uh, in December. So every time we, he hear us talking to our uh, family in Gaza, he would ask, does my grandfather has have food? Does my grandmother do he then he starts to mention his uh, uh, cousins' names. Uh, is uh, Mustafa is is he eating? Is yet is uh, is Nahida eating? So he starts to, to mention them by name, and for me, I feel really really uh, depressed whenever I go out in the street and find food. So two days ago, I went and I bought two loaves of bread for about less than a dollar. If I'm taking this these two loaves of bread to Gaza right now. I would make a fortune. I would sell them for about maybe fifty dollars. I'm serious because one. So yeah, this is very very recent news. One sack of bread, which weighs uh, twenty five kilograms, is sold for one thousand and five hundred dollars because there is no wheat flour. This is this is yesterday, and now I think the government in Gaza, although there is no government, but some people do, who worked with the government are threatening people who are selling these things for very, very staggering prices. Has your sister-in-law given birth yet? Yes, she gave birth to a boy. His name is Ali. And now the boy is 10, 10, day, 10 days old. And uh, my brother could find something like a gift for his uh, wife. Uh, he could find uh, a few pieces of, of beef and a few grains of rice for $100. So this wouldn't even be enough for his, uh, for his wife who gave birth just 10 days ago. So, so although it's a very expensive thing, he could find these things after a week of search. The last time UNRWA was able to deliver food aid to northern Gaza was January 23rd. Since then, together with other U.N. agencies—this is a tweet from uh, Philippe Lazzarini, the head of UNRWA—he said, the last time um, uh, we have warned against—it says, since then, together with other U.N. agencies, we have warned against looming famine, appealed for regular humanitarian access, stated that famine can be averted if more food convoys are allowed into northern Gaza on a regular basis. Our calls to send food aid have been denied and have fallen on deaf ears. This is a man-made disaster. The world committed to never let famine happen again. Famine can still be avoided through genuine political will to grant access and protection to meaningful assistance. The days to come will once again test our common humanity and values. Again, a post on social media by Philippe Lazzarini, head of UNRWA, coming as the World Food Program has also paused its aid delivery to northern Gaza. And, of course, UNRWA under siege, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has long tried to get rid of the U.N. agency, um, and now— Nearly 20 countries have defunded it, including the country that gave UNRWA the most money, the United States. Mossab Abu Toha, your response? Well, I, I would like the whole world to, to, to listen to this. Now, Israel is not allowing food into the northern part of 
part of Gaza. So people would 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 regret not having left it as Israel was encouraging people to or ordering people to to leave. And now people are thinking, okay, if we leave the northern part of Gaza, is it, it would it be safe to be in the south? So because the first few days and a few weeks, Israel was telling people and ordering people, okay, you are safe now. You can take the Salah al-Din Street or the the beach, the the Sea Street. Uh, and go to the south because this would be a safe place for you. And many, many people left, including me, and I was kidnapped on the way. But many people left, and now they are crowded in Rafah in tents. I have one brother who's a bodybuilder and weightlifter. He's a champion. He was a champion in Gaza. And he wrote me yesterday, he said, brother, I haven't left my tent for a week. I'm depressed. I'm about to die. So he's in Rafah, and he's depressed. And he thinks that he's going to die very soon. This is one thing. And the other thing, how many food trucks have been halted from getting into Israel? How many weapons trucks, how many weapon ship, arms shipments were halted from getting into Israel? Why, is it, why could Israel stop food trucks from getting into civilians? And when we know that most of these civilians are children, while, the, the, while all the people in the world could not stop the ship, shipping of weapons destructive weapons into Israel. I'm not, I'm not talking here about stopping food trucks from, in, from going into Israel, but I'm talking about uh, here about weapons. I mean, where is the mind of the people in the world? How could you allow this to happen? You are funding Israel with more weapons and more food, of course, but you are not, we are not asking people to allow weapon trucks into Gaza. I mean, we are not asking for this because we don't want this to continue. We, what, what we are asking for is that people in Gaza have food and have medicine, and we need to leave to lift the siege on Gaza because this this siege, which is now intensified, is did not start today. Gaza has been under siege since two thousand seven, and now we are in the bleakest stages of this siege. Gaza is not only now under siege, but it's under genocide. So this is very scary, and I hope the the world will not continue to watch. And, and just show us that they are helpless uh, in the face of Israel. Masab, I mean, if you can't get food into Gaza, can you please stop the shipping of weapons into Israel? Because they are killing us every day. I wanted to ask you about the International Court of Justice, which has just concluded its six-day hearing on Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. This is Ralph Wild, a representative of the League of Arab States. The occupation must end. Israel must renounce its claim to sovereignty over the Palestinian territory. All settlers must be removed immediately. This is required to end the illegality, to discharge the positive obligation to enable immediate Palestinian self-administration, and because Israel lacks any legal entitlement to exercise authority. Second, in the absence of the occupation ending, necessarily everything Israel does in the Palestinian territory lacks a valid international legal basis and is, therefore, subject to the Namibia exception, invalid. Not only those things violating the law regulating the conduct of the occupation. Those norms entitle and require Israel to do certain things, 
But this doesn't alter the more fundamental position from the law on the use of force and self-determination that Israel lacks any valid authority to do anything. And whatever it does is illegal, even if compliant with or pursuant to the conduct regulatory rules. I will close by quoting Palestinian academic and poet Rifat Alaria from his final poem posted 36 days before he was killed by Israel in Gaza on the 6th of December 2023. If I must die, you must live to tell my story. That was Ralph Wald, a representative of the League of Arab States, quoting the late Palestinian poet Rafat Alarir. Um, Masaba Butoha, you were a close friend of Rafat. Can you respond to what he said? Well, I, I'm, I'm still wondering how Israel could be still a member of the United Nations when we know that it is occupying Palestinian lands. I mean, this is, I think, one, one condition uh, through which Israel joined the United Nations, I think, in the uh, early 1950s, was uh, to, to stand by, you know, the borders that, that were set after the partition plan. But now Israel occupies more than 90 percent of the Palestinian land. Uh, I think what, what Rifat is asking is um, how the world is, you know, is, is, is unable to control a state that they continue to fund. I mean, they, they can't control it, but they continue to fund it. And they continue to cut the funds to the United Nations organization that is trying to support the Palestinian people, not during this genocide, but UNRWA has been supporting people. And I was educated in their schools, and I went to their clinics and got uh, medications for free. And now they are cutting their funding during the most the most critical time of our lives in Gaza and also in, in other parts of the world. So this, is, this, is, this really drives me insane because the world is, is, is pretending to be unable to do anything, but they do the opposite. They continue to fund Israel. They send, they, they send it weapons. They send, it, they send Israel uh, more fruit and more vegetables and more, more wheat fl flour and more gas. But they say, okay, we can't, we can't stop Israel from killing children. And I mean, I, I hope that someone, someone, someone would, would come to, to explain this to me one time. And also one, one last point before I end uh, my, with my answer is that how many officials from the world came to Gaza to meet with the real people there? If they are saying that, that Gaza is all Hamas, can you please come to Gaza and meet my mother? my brother, my sibling, Ali, who is now 10, 10 days old. Can you come and meet them and listen to them, what, what they are asking for? But, but it, was, it was easy for them to, to, come, to go to Israel and meet with, them, with, the, with, the, with the monsters there who are waging the war and who are inciting uh, to kill more and more people. But they never came to Gaza. I, I think there is one reason for that, because is Gaza does not have an airport. So it was easy for them to fly and land in, in the land of Israel because they have an airport. But maybe one, re one reason they couldn't come to Gaza is that Gaza does not have an airport. I mean, I could try to understand that. 
Mazab Abu Taha, we want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian poet, author, teacher, founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza. We will link to your new piece in The New Yorker magazine, headlined, My Family's Daily Struggle to Find Food in Gaza. His award-winning book is titled, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, Poems from Gaza. This is Democracy Now!, I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to damning new projections about the health crisis unfolding in Gaza. In a minute, we'll be joined by one of the lead authors of a joint report from the London School of Hygiene and Johns Hopkins University, which found, quote, even in the best-case ceasefire scenario, thousands of excess deaths would continue to occur, mainly due to the time it would take to improve water sanitation and shelter conditions, reduce malnutrition, and restore functioning health care services in Gaza, unquote. In an interview with CNN last week, the regional emergency director of the World Health Organization, Dr. Richard Brennan, was asked about the report's projections. This study is absolutely striking. I don't know how many wake-up calls we need to alert us to the dire, absolutely dire and desperate situation on the ground. We've already lost 29,000 people from traumatic injuries. We already have over 70,000 others that have survived injuries uh, with some terrible injuries. I was in Gaza last week. You, you can't imagine uh, the deformities, the, the limb losses uh, of young children, young, uh, young adolescents, young adults uh, who are going to be left with these disabilities for years to come. Um, we don't know how many people are, uh, have died because they didn't get access to their blood pressure tab, uh, medicines or their uh, uh, diabetic treatment and so on. So, but we know that we, we suspect that thousands more have died unnecessarily because of lack of access to health care. And now you have these two reputable institutions. I know the, the two uh, study leaders. No one is better placed to do these kind of estimates uh, than these two institutions. And now we're saying uh, if, if things continue, if we see this escalation, if we see this military operation into Rafa, we're going to be looking at an extra 80-odd thousand deaths in six months' time. If that's not a wake-up call, I, I, I don't know what is. That was the World Health Organization's Regional Emergency Director, Dr. Richard Brennan. For more, we're joined in London by Zena Jamaluddin. She's a nutritionist and epidemiologist, one of the lead authors of this new joint report from the London School of Hygiene and Johns Hopkins titled Crisis in Gaza, Scenario-Based Health Impact Projections. She's a research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Zena, welcome to Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us. Just lay out your findings. Hello, welcome. So, as that was just mentioned, in fact, we have attempted to actually project what would be the excess mortality in different scenarios in Gaza. In fact, we know that there is the direct effect of the war, but however, we also wanted to understand what is the indirect effect of the war on infectious diseases, for example, mortality from COVID-19, uh, increased uh, excess mortality from maternal and newborn health care because they're not able to access uh, health services, um, increased mortality due to the uh, chronic diseases for specifically type 1 diabetic patients, uh, people with chronic kidney diseases, and how much excess mortality would happen due to this. We also modeled the impact of acute malnutrition, which is what was just mentioned right now in terms of how much wasting or thin children would increase as an underlying factor to all of this excess death. So what, with this attempt, we actually find that 
in case of a ceasefire, around 6,000 to 11,000 lives would uh, would actually be uh, um, dead and would have an excess death in the case of a ceasefire of around 11,000 deaths. In case of an escalation, we'd see around 85,000 deaths, which is currently what's happening in Rafah uh, and in the next six months. But also what's important to point out is in case of a ceasefire now, we would be saving around 75,000 lives. Can you respond to this latest news of the two-month-old baby boy, the Palestinian child, who died on Friday of starvation? Yes, of course. Uh, so basically, uh, before the war, we knew we know that in terms of wasting, which is, means that thin children, the prevalence or the level in Gaza was around 3%. The majority of the population in Gaza was heavily reliant on food assistance. This was 77% of the population relied on assistance coming in. With the current uh, food trucks being uh, very limited coming into Gaza, uh, we actually modeled the decrease in the food availability currently in Gaza, the decrease in agricultural land available in Gaza, but also the decrease in the food truck coming into Gaza to actually understand what is the caloric intake that is happening currently to understand the increase in malnutrition or wasting. What we project, in fact, is that on to date, we see a prevalence of around 12% of children under five, um, under five that are uh, wasting. Uh, we, we would also project that the next few months, in the case of an escalation, this would reach to 26%, which is classified as catastrophic. Um, in the next six months, the prevalence would reach 50%. So uh, basically, responding to what you're saying, we're actually currently starting to see the critical phase of acute malnutrition being, uh, being um, portrayed. What would solve this, Sena? A ceasefire, first of all. Uh, a significant increase in food access, whether it's also through airdrops and through uh, basically uh, allowing all the food trucks and also medical aid to come in uh, without any restrictions. I wanted to ask you about how casualties are prefaced, especially in the Western media. Uh, your piece for The Lancet in November is titled Excess Mortality in Gaza, October 7th to 26, 2023. So many news media in the West preface casualty figures by saying, quote, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, which has led so many to question the veracity of the figures. What did you find? Um, so when the Ministry of Health has released the first listing of uh, people who were killed in, during October, we as epidemiologists uh, took this data and actually analyzed to understand what is happening in terms of duplication and the accuracy of the data. We have analyzed it as London School separately, but also Hopkins University has analyzed it. And we both find that there is no reason to actually doubt the accuracy of this data. Uh, there's another aspect of it all to say that uh, previous, in previous war, the Ministry of Health data has been validated and uh, basically uh, from different independent sources. 
Uh, at the same time, this is the same system that the Ministry of Health has used previously for COVID-19 reporting or other mortality estimation and reporting. So it's important to note that this didn't start uh, at the beginning of the war of reporting mortality. And so they relied on this system. But we did assess the accuracy and we find no reason to doubt these data sets uh, or the numbers reported by the Ministry of Health. Well, Zaina Jamaluddin, we want to thank you so much for being with us, nutritionist and epidemiologist, one of the lead authors of the new joint report from the London School of Hygiene and Johns Hopkins titled Crisis in Gaza, Scenario-Based Health Impact Projections. She's a research fellow at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We'll link to that report. Next up, anti-Palestinian at the core. We look at the origins and growing dangers of U.S. anti-terrorism law. Stay with us. Change of the Century by Ornette Coleman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at how Palestinians are being increasingly targeted by U.S. anti-terrorism laws amidst ongoing efforts to conflate pro-Palestinian activism with so-called terrorism. The Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, has called on university presidents to investigate Students for Justice in Palestine, known as SJP chapters, for, quote, material support for terrorism. ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt has even compared SJP to the Hitler Youth. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And the SJP and these kids who are pushing it are like the Hitler Youth. Sorry, I know people don't like it when I say that, but it's true. And what Shai said before is spot on. Meanwhile, several American universities have suspended or banned Students for Justice in Palestine. In an interview in January with CNN's Dana Bash, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi claimed, without evidence, some protesters demanding a ceasefire in Gaza are connected to Russia and urged the FBI to investigate them. But for them to call for a ceasefire is Mr. Putin's message. Mr. Putin's message. Make no mistake, this is directly connected to what he would like to see. Same thing with Ukraine. It's about Putin's message. I think some of these, some of these protesters are spontaneous and organic and sincere. Some, I think, are connected uh, to Russia. And I say that having looked at this for a long time now, as you, you know. You think some not. of these protests are Russian plants? See, their plans. I think some financing should be investigated, and I want to ask the the uh, uh, FBI to investigate that. 
Xi later would say when people were protesting in San Francisco, go back to China. For more, we're joined by two guests who've been following all of this closely. Dara Lee is an anthropologist and lawyer teaching at University of Chicago. He's the author of the new briefing paper, Anti-Palestinian at the Core, the Origins and Growing Dangers of U.S. Anti-Terrorism Law, jointly published with the Center for Constitutional Rights and Palestine Legal. And we're joined by Dima Khalidi, founder and director of Palestine Legal. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Dara Lee, let's start with you. Talk about what you found. Good morning, Amy. It's good to be with you. Well, I think many viewers of Democracy Now! are probably familiar with the way that Palestinians have been slandered and stereotyped as terrorists for a long time. What this report does is it reaches back and connects the dots of a longer history, going back almost 50 years, showing how the very foundations of terrorism law in the United States, at key moments of their development, were crafted with the agenda of opposing or crushing Palestinian liberation in mind. The first time the word terrorism even shows up in federal law is in a 1969 statute, and it's unfortunately very relevant today. This statute restricts U.S. aid to UNRWA, the U.N. body that provides humanitarian aid to refugees, and it uses um, the word terrorism essentially as a synonym for Palestinian resistance. Um, and one of the chief sponsors of this legislation, Congressman Leonard Farbstein from New York, made a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives where he peddled the stereotype of uh, UNRWA schools and Palestinian refugee camps essentially as hotbeds of terrorism that are brainwashing the sort of next generation of terrorists. So in light of today's campaigns to defund UNRWA and to deprive Palestinians of humanitarian aid, we can see that this is part of a much, much longer campaign that extends in many different directions. Can you talk about who is pushing these laws and what their agenda is, Darrelly? Yes. One of the other key aspects of the story is the role of organizations like the Anti-Defamation League in pushing for this legislation over time. And again, this is relevant for one of the clips that you just played, the clip of Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, um, accusing student activists, SJP, of terrorism support, of being terrorism supporters. Um, there's a bit of a coming full circle moment here, because the ADL was actually one of the organizations that lobbied very heavily for the passage of this law that criminalizes so-called material support to terrorist organizations. The material support statute is actually the most commonly used charge in federal terrorism cases. And the reason why it's prosecutors' favorite tool is because it is incredibly broad. It criminalizes ordinary activity that would, that would usually be covered and protected by the First Amendment. Um, so it's a very, very convenient weapon. And it was passed in the 1990s um, as the result of a long-running campaign by the ADL and other groups to essentially crack down on Palestinian community organizing and Palestinian solidarity organizing in the United States. And what they did actually was they exploited the outrage following the 1995 bombing of a federal building in Oklahoma City. Now, many people will recall, of course, that the people who carried out that bombing were U.S. citizens, essentially right-wing white nationalist militia members. Um, but the law that was passed as a result of the Oklahoma City bombing um, 
included, it was mostly a sort of get, on, get tough on crime, crack down on, on immigration bill that included the, the material support um, law that was proposed by the ADL as part of a larger package of measures that were all about essentially targeting Palestinian liberation movements. And Dima Khalidi, uh, head of Palestine Legal, let's be clear, it's not only Students for Justice in Palestine that have been banned on some campuses, but also Jewish Voice for Peace. That's right, Amy. Um, we've seen over the last several months uh, multiple efforts to shut down student activism, and that is a direct result of, uh, of, of uh, efforts by groups like the ADL, uh, but also by uh, uh, statements by President Biden himself that have said that he will mobilize, he is mobilizing federal law enforcement to surveil uh, uh, campus activism. And these threats of surveillance that Pelosi herself uh, uh, made as well, uh, are serious. And they reflect what we are saying in this report is a fundamentally anti-Palestinian agenda. Uh, when uh, the U.S. government, instead of uh, stopping military aid to Israel uh, to stop this genocide, is stopping funding for UNRWA, that is a lifeline for Gazans, um, this is uh, uh, the result of decades of uh, anti-Palestinian rhetoric that has allowed these laws to develop and that is ultimately in this moment when people are mobilizing to stop this genocide, a cover for the genocide. It is a justification for the dehumanization of Palestinians and their allies to tar them uh, with criminal or discriminatory intent. And that's the intention of this report, is to really expose this, this anti-Palestinian agenda that is driving um, efforts to, to really expand these laws to, to target First Amendment activity that is, is uh, trying to mobilize people uh, for justice. Palestine Legal has received multiple reports of the FBI harassing Palestine advocates for their social media posts. Can you describe some examples, Dima? Well, we and other uh, legal organizations that are supporting people who are facing increasing repression are getting multiple reports of uh, people being visited by the FBI. Um, often because of social media posts that they, they make, uh, because of their, their activism on the streets. Um, and people have even been visited uh, uh, by ICE, um, uh, immigration enforcement agencies. Um, and this is a direct result, again, of this rhetoric, um, of, of this increase in, in uh, surveillance resources uh, to law enforcement agencies. And uh, as we know from the post-9-11 era, um, the impact on our communities is enormous. It has a huge chilling effect on people, on First Amendment rights, um, but it also is, uh, is, is a, a signal of an erosion of a whole host of, of constitutional rights. Um, when law enforcement is mobilized in this way, as we saw in the 1960s with COINTELPRO, as we saw in the post-9-11 era. So this is uh, just the beginning, we think, of what is a, a massive mobilization of state resources against this movement. And uh, this is why we're publishing this report now, to really encourage lawmakers to protect First Amendment rights, to 
roll back these laws which are only shielding Israel from accountability and scrutiny and undermining fundamental First Amendment rights for everybody. Can you talk about the anti-Palestinian bills that are in front of Congress tonight, one of them that would possibly radically expand deportations of Palestinians at this time, Dima? Yeah, we're seeing legislatures around the country, not just Congress, but uh, state legislatures uh, threatening, uh, pr presenting bills that are uh, trying to justify uh, an erosion of, of constitutional rights and um, uh, First Amendment rights by uh, noting uh, terrorism, supposed terrorism threats, right? Um, and certainly, in, after October 7th, we saw an increase in these kinds of bills, um, one that, that wanted to deport all Palestinians. And we see this rhetoric from our elected officials as well. So um, we're, we are uh, very clear that the reason that this is allowed to happen is because uh, this anti-Palestinian sentiment has been cemented not only into U.S. law, but into the minds of people. And that's why uh, these kinds of bills are, are proposed with hardly anyone blinking an eye uh, while uh, Palestinians are being obliterated in Gaza as we speak. Um, so this is a very concerning moment um, and, and one where we must all stand up and recognize that uh, our laws are uh, be, have been built and are being used and exploited uh, to further uh, the, the Israel's own agenda and, uh, you know, the United States' complicity in, uh, in what Israel is doing right now. Dara Lee, can you talk about what most surprised you in this last minute we have uh, in doing the research for this report? Yes, well, I think uh, one of the surprising episodes um, is the one that I referred to earlier about the way that the material support law was passed after the Oklahoma City bombing. Essentially, what happened was that the Clinton administration proposed a sort of general anti-terrorism law that included the things that the ADL wanted that essentially targeted Palestinians, but also included things that you would expect, like expanded law enforcement authority, regulation of, of firearms and explosives and so on. And the House-led, um, sorry, the Republican-led House of Representatives essentially gutted that bill and replaced it with all of the provisions that they wanted. Um, and immediately, uh, the Democrats and the ADL pushed back, lobbied very hard, and the parts of the original bill only, the ones that pertained to so-called international terrorism that were essentially targeting Palestinians, were put back into the bill. So it's a really sobering example of how anti-Palestinian animus is one of the most enduring um, areas of bipartisan appeal in Washington. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. We're going to link to your report. Dara Lee, lawyer, associate professor of anthropology and social sciences at the University of Chicago, and Dima Khalidi, founder and director of Palestine Legal. The new briefing paper is Anti-Palestinian at the Core, the Origins and Growing Dangers of U.S. Anti-Terrorism Law. That does it for our show. To see all our video and audio podcasts, you can go to democracynow.org. And congratulations to our whole team as we just surpassed 2 million YouTube viewers. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Gesdesher, Doug Caduce, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.